Welcome everybody to Dr. Allett's Optimizing Brains Connectors Group meeting. I'd like to just remind people that these webinars are for educational and informational purposes only and none of the information included is intended to constitute medical advice, consultation, recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. Today I would like to welcome Dr. Miranda Marty, who is our guest speaker. Dr. Marty is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist specializing in the connections between women's health, digestive health, and mental health. In addition to her private practice at Whole Life Medicine in Kirkland, Washington, she leads wellness groups at a Seattle-based drug and alcohol recovery program and is adjunct faculty for the Bastyr University Health Psychology Department. Welcome, Miranda. I wanted to start out with just talking about how estrogen changes the brain actually starting more or less from birth. And I'm kind of curious, actually, I'll just start off with a question pretty early. Is anyone familiar with the effects that estrogen has on the brain from the time that we're, you know, in our first month to about two years? It looks like some people are not aware of that, okay. so we're looking I, forward to it. <laughs> okay, yes, I wasn't aware of this either until... Um, well, they probably covered it in medical school, but it wasn't actually until several years after I'd graduated that I think I really learned about it. But it really helped a story that my mother had always told me about myself make a lot of sense. Like most mothers, she likes to talk about her children, um, sometimes to her children. And she told me, you know, when you were a baby, you were such an outgoing little girl. You were just the most precocious thing. I could bring you anywhere, and you'd just be happy and excited and, um, you know, kind of flirt with everyone. And then something happened when you were two, and all of a sudden you just became shy, kind of that classic, you know, hiding behind mom's skirt. And I, I could never give her anything more than a shrug about what had happened uh, until I really learned about our kind of our first adolescence actually occurs during the first two years of life where our ovaries are really active they're putting out unopposed estrogen to our brain that's really helping build our verbal and emotional circuits so being a confident outgoing you know kind of flirty little child that's something that is probably a learned survival skill uh, to help you get through that very early time in life. And so part of, part of what we see in childhood development where there are some changes to little girls' demeanors around the age of two, some of that can be the effect of their estrogen supplies kind of falling down to where they will remain throughout childhood. And from ages two until puberty, uh, estrogen levels are going to remain pretty stable until the, the puberty that we're all familiar with occurs. And all of a sudden, both estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are rising and cycling. And I do include testosterone in there because women are producing uh, testosterone. It's the actually the precursor to uh, forming estrogen. So if we were going to write down the, the path that estrogen takes from its building block of cholesterol, we'd start with um, cholesterol, then we'd draw an arrow over to DHEA, uh, which is a somewhat popular supplement these days. Uh, and then from DHEA, there's actually androgens, two different forms of um, testosterone that we have an aromatase enzyme that turns that testosterone into estrogen. During puberty, our brains and our bodies are just starting to experience all three of these hormones in varying levels. And one of the things that estrogen really does is during the first half of the cycle, it's often increasing confidence, kind of just like it was when we were between the ages of maybe one and and two, it's really um, helping us feel more outgoing. It's helping our thinking be a little bit more clear, a little bit more sharp. But then something happens that didn't happen before, which is pro progesterone comes in, balances that out. And all of a sudden, 
we've got sort of a roller coaster of confidence is up, confidence is down. And that's part of where you start seeing that really increased sensitivity to stress or maybe even um, increased sensitivity to perhaps um, criticism. I think we're all familiar that with um, teenage girls, on one day you can say something that's going to be completely innocuous and the next day you might say the exact same thing and you've just ruined their life. <laughs> and a lot of that is, is governed by changing um, levels of estrogen and progesterone. As we uh, reach sexual maturity and adulthood, we're starting to kind of get used to that roller coaster of changes that are occurring every day of the month. During pregnancy, that is sometimes uh, a time where women report feeling as bad as they ever have, or that was the time where their brain and their body felt as good as they ever had. And often, the if they're leaning towards one or the other, that's telling us a little bit something about what their baseline estrogen and progesterone levels probably are. Uh, when women often report, you know, I never felt better than when I was pregnant, that can often be a clue that their progesterone levels uh, baseline might be on the lower side. Uh, because progesterone tends to really suppress stress circuits, really help people feel um, calm and um, sort of satisfied. And when that level rises significantly during pregnancy, that can really help people have a stability that they hadn't perhaps uh, felt in, in their just ambiently in life prior. Um, perimenopause often just um, described as sort of a second puberty, and that's not really inaccurate. Um, uh, between uh, up to seven years before the day of menopause and seven years after the day of menopause, those uh, estrogen and progesterone levels will start uh, kind of giving a, a more of a roller coaster effect the same way that they did when we were just first starting to experience them um, during adolescence. And over time, it's moving towards the decreased sensitivity to estrogen. And one of the uh, psychological changes that that often brings about is a shift from the brain circuits that really make us fo focus outward on taking care of other people and giving us more of a, a brain circuitry that allows us to really focus on ourselves. I'm of an age where I'm just... Uh, me and a lot of my, my friends are kind of starting to enter that perimenopausal period. <laughs> and, you know, it's a time where um, a lot of uh, life and family changes can occur. You hear about, you know, maybe marriages uh, deciding that that relationship is, is no longer a good fit for the participants um, or uh, some of the classic, you know, okay, my, my mom or my wife has just gone insane because of uh, these hormonal changes. And is it really an insanity? <laughs> no, I mean, it's really uh, often uh, a change uh, in, in hormonal balance, but also a focus from I'm going to take care of everyone else to I'm going to take care of myself, and sometimes, you know, different skill sets and adjustments need to be made in that transition. And then uh, menopause, by definition, is actually just a 24-hour period. <laughs> um, it is the 24 hours that are one year since uh, the last menses, and that is when uh, our estrogen levels drop to a very low level, and our progesterone goes basically to nil. So the outcome of that is that the brain really starts stabilizing because now the hormonal effects are, uh, you know, just incredibly predictable. But because progesterone is one of the hormones that is really driving um, a lot of the sedation circuits in the brain, that's also a time where um, poor sleep, anxiety can really become a feature in people's lives. All right. Well, I will head over here for uh, just a quick rundown on some of the differences between estrogen and progesterone 
in the brain themselves. Um, so one of the things that I think is under-recognized, probably not by the people here, but just by the world at large and sometimes by conventional medicine itself, is that naturally occurring estrogen and progesterone are psychoactive. They absolutely interact with receptors in the brain. Estrogen is mildly excitatory. It interacts with, um, we think, NMDA receptors, which tend to uh, make the synapses between brain cells a little bit more active. So in moderate amounts, that's increased confidence, it's sharper thinking, it's improved memory. But of course, if you overstimulate the brain, then you're shifting into irritability, emotional lability, and an increased voice to that inner critic that can really undermine confidence, um, as well as you know, just someone's sense of, of security in the world. Progesterone, on the other hand, is the balancing um, hormone, it's inhibitory. We think that it interacts with GABA receptors, which are the same neurotransmitter receptor target for alcohol, for benzodiazepines, for sleeping pills. Um, and in moderate amounts, progesterone is helping decrease the stress response. That's part of what helps people survive the stress of a pregnancy. Um, it's also really uh, playing a huge role in sleep. So one of the reasons you might see a sleep cycle shift with a woman's menstrual cycle can, can be that uh, progesterone levels are falling uh, right around, you know, that's part of what starts the, the um, onset of bleeding. And similar to estrogen, uh, too much progesterone can also be a bad thing because you sedate the brain too much and you can have a situation where it is feeling fatigued, depressed, indifferent to the world, um, and a sense of brain fog and difficult decision making. There aren't a whole lot of uh, medical conditions where we really see progesterone being the dominant uh, hormone. So I think of of many causes of fatigue, depression, brain fog, usually the only time I'm really suspicious that progesterone is at play there is if someone is taking a um, progesterone as a medication. Um, estrogen, on the other hand, uh, probably for a lot of different reasons, uh, does tend to dominate uh, things quite a bit. So there, I think if a woman is, is experiencing um, anxiety, irritability, um, emotional lability, it's probably worthwhile to look at uh, what the estrogen-progesterone ratio might be. And I find this slide really helpful um, for talking with women who are reporting mood changes and sleep changes with their cycle. So up at top, we've got tryptophan. That's an amino acid that is coming from protein from the food we eat. So that's our dietary tryptophan there, and just like with any protein resource, um, as, as uh, Kristen has probably uh, taught you all quite well, there are lots of different things that a body can do with a protein resource because it's making up almost every structure in the body. Uh, one of the things that we really hope that tryptophan does is that ultimately it's going to become serotonin and then melatonin. And when both estrogen levels and stress levels, it doesn't have to be at the same time, either could do this independently. When estrogen levels and stress levels really start to rise, that influences the body to choose a different path for tryptophan. Instead, tryptophan is going to be made into niacinamide, which is a great antioxidant for the liver. And that's probably helpful because the liver is usually working hard to either detoxify high levels of estrogen or, um, you know, kind of help us manage all the things that come along with high levels of stress. But we can also look at that as sort of an estrogen steal. Estrogen is stealing our serotonin and melatonin 
uh, because it's stealing the tryptophan and it's giving it to another circuit in the body. And that is something that uh, many women absolutely can experience on, on a, a, in a cyclic fashion over the course of the month. Um, some other things to note about these pathways um, is that B vitamins are really, really important for the transition of tryptophan to the 5-HTP to the serotonin to the melatonin. And one of the things that can really help shift that balance back to serotonin and melatonin production when estrogen levels are high um, is a B vitamin complex. So that's something that is usually um, a pretty uh, safe intervention for, for most people because it's water-soluble. It's not something that they're going to necessarily build up to toxic levels. <laughs> um, but that's something that uh, a lot of people, I think, can, can give a try to and uh, see if that can help uh, smooth those transitions um, of hormones. Another thing that's really helpful to remember when thinking about the brain and the body, you know, being connected, is that iron is also important in uh, the, the pathway of tryptophan to serotonin and melatonin. So when you have a woman who is maybe bleeding very heavily, she may become iron deficient. That iron deficiency in and of itself is going to further dysregulate um, her brain via um, further diminishing her ability to produce serotonin and melatonin. So along with um, the, the fatigue and the things that just uh, come along with anemia, uh, she may also be experiencing um, mood changes and sleep changes just because of um, the, the body not having all of the building blocks it needs to run that particular pathway. And I think with that, that is the last of my, my super science-y slides. Let's talk about some of those conditions um, that, we, that could potentially be very pertinent to this slide in particular, where we're concerned that estrogen might be really shifting someone's balance between whether or not they have all of the serotonin and melatonin that they need to have a stable, satisfied brain with good sleep cycle. Um, because it's hard to have good, good physical or mental health if you don't have good sleep. So um, some of the, the conditions that are quite common um, for, um, for premenopausal women uh, are conditions that we call estrogen dominant, because in that balance of estrogen and progesterone, the estrogen levels are, just appear to be significantly higher. Um, so... Uh, perhaps most widely known is uh, PMS, or premenstrual syndrome. Uh, it has recently gained a, um, a cousin or perhaps even a sibling for a much more severe um, version of that premenstrual dysphoric disorder, where the mood changes in particular associated with the cycle are debilitating. And I work with a lot of women who have premenstrual dysphoric disorder because conventionally um, the primary tools that they have to treat that are the use of synthetic hormones like birth control pills or um, SSRIs, antidepressants. And when those are tolerated, I think that's actually a really reasonable um, treatment but not all women are going to tolerate this well. And so where do you uh, kind of, where do you begin to work with someone who can't take the medications that are, are prescribed for these conditions? That's where you really have to look at digestive health and uh, you really have to look at the, the body as a whole, um, as we'll explain a little bit later. Uh, menstrual migraines, uh, those are often, uh, estrogen's often a culprit there. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, that's a condition of both hormones and metabolism. So you have women who um, have chronically high estrogen levels, chronically low progesterone levels, and they tend to 
um, have a lot of irritability, anxiety, and depression are far more prevalent um, amongst women with PCOS than they are amongst the general population. Uh, they're also having concerns about fertility and often obesity and uh, easy weight gain, really difficult weight loss because their insulin has become, um, their, their body's no longer sensitive to insulin. And that, of course, has its own effects on the brain as well. Um, and then endometriosis and fibroids. These are two conditions um, that, calling back to this last slide here, where I highlighted um, the importance of iron, they can really uh, cause someone to become anemic because endometriosis and fibroids um, may be associated with very heavy menstrual bleeding. So as you're, um, as you're uh, perhaps doing an inventory with uh, clients or if there's someone um, in your life that is, is struggling with uh, anxiety or depression or difficult sleep, and you're kind of thinking holistically, are there any, um, are there any organic or, or physical contributors? This would really be a list of keywords that you could look for to think, okay, the, the hormones, particularly estrogen, might be playing a role here. So some of the steps to help balance high estrogen that I think could be um, pretty appropriate for just about anyone. Uh, one is to eat a really high-fiber diet. Uh, fiber, I think, is, is something that we often think about for colon health, but not necessarily for um, hormones. And I'm curious if anyone is familiar with what the, the connection between a high-fiber diet and uh, hormones might be. I guess it has to do with the gut. It does, absolutely. So one of, one of the places that our body uh, basically detoxifies estrogen uh, is the liver. But, and, and most, uh, you know, most, most healthcare providers would be aware of that. But something that, again, has been, I think, really under-recognized in medicine is that one of the other major sites of estrogen metabolism where we can actually break it down and move it out is the digestive system. Mm -hmm. So what's supposed to happen is that when our body is, um, is done with, a, um, with a, a molecule of estrogen, it's supposed to be sent to the liver to be broken down. From the liver, it goes to the gallbladder, into the bile, into the intestines where it's really, it's just, it's bound to that piece of bile, so it's going to move out of the body with a bowel movement. But when, uh, when fiber is low in the diet, one of the things that can happen is that an enzyme can come in and basically uncouple the estrogen from its bile and allow the body to reabsorb it. And that is absolutely one of the ways that um, some women can find themselves in a really high estrogen state is their body is actually uh, breaking down the estrogen in the liver the way that it's supposed to, but it's getting recycled in the digestive tract because it doesn't have enough stuff to bind it, bind to it, and move it out with a bowel movement regularly. So one thing that's going to be just a win for the body on so many different levels, but especially for this extra estrogen detoxification, is to eat a really a high fiber diet. Uh, we know from the NHANES study that uh, the average American diet gets about 12 and a half grams of fiber per day, and the, that fiber is coming almost exclusively from whole grains. Uh, but what we need just to keep a healthy digestive system healthy is about 25 to 35 grams of fiber. So ha the average American is getting exactly half of what they need just to maintain normal digestive health, um, which really does set the stage for these, these sort of high estrogen conditions. To really, uh, to really help get that digestive system kind of back in shape to really help grow the gut flora that also assist with the estrogen detoxification and metabolism. Um, we probably want to, at our minimum, aim for the 25 grams of fiber daily, and then hopefully increase that even more up to about 50 grams. 
And the dietary fiber source, um, primarily soluble fibers are going to be the most important, but the reality is that the digestive system loves fiber diversity. So I think all fiber is going to be good fiber for um, digestive and hormonal health. One of the, oh, and sometimes people uh, do ask the question, well, would a, let's say I really don't want to eat vegetables or fruits or whole grains, uh, would a fiber supplement help? Um, and to that end, I'd say uh, getting the majority of our fiber from a supplement isn't ideal. But that's not to say that it's not going to make a positive contribution. So if we're going with the, the harm reduction, you know, sort of philosophy that some fiber is better than no fiber, then yes, absolutely a, a fiber supplement could be a reasonable um, choice or a reasonable addition to someone's diet. Anti-inflammatory fats, um, fish, eating fish at least twice a week, that, um, and of course eating the right types of fish, the omega-3 fatty acid rich fish like salmon, those are, um, that's, that's the level that also it kind of just keeps a healthy brain healthy. Um, fish oil supplements are also a um, really great assist for balancing inflammation. And one of the reasons that we want to balance inflammation is that as estrogen and progesterone levels are rising right before a woman starts her period, that's also a time where prostaglandins, which are an inflammatory um, signal, that those are also rising. So if the inflammatory um, signals are rising unopposed, then that's going to lead to a much more painful period and a much more, um, I would say, distressed brain because we know inflammation affects the brain as well as it does all the rest of the body. So making sure that there are anti-inflammatory oils in the diet uh, really helps kind of keep that balance. Um, when I ask people, are you eating, you know, two servings of fish per week, I would say less than half the time do I get a positive response. Uh, nuts and seeds as regular snacks. Uh, nuts and seeds also contain some anti-inflammatory oils and some oils that can just be inflammation neutral as well. And uh, thirdly, under anti-inflammation is to more or less treat dairy like a condiment uh, rather than a staple um, because uh, cheese, for example, cheese is delicious. <laughs> But dairy tends to be pro-inflammatory, particularly for women with higher estrogen levels. And, you know, could this be because of how um, a lot of the, the cows in our kind of dairy production are themselves treated with really high levels of hormones? Um, possibly. Uh, is it because there can be a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of concentration of um, pesticides in the fat from animals that are fed a non-organic diet because often um, pesticides themselves can act as sort of pseudoestrogen in the body. Um, that's also possible. Uh, is it because uh, lactose or milk sugars uh, can uh, can interact with the digestive system and the hormone system in ways that, that really um, kind of promote these higher estrogen levels. I think that's a sort of interesting theory. We don't know for sure. Uh, but in any event, I tend to uh, really advise people, uh, if you absolutely do want to keep dairy in your diet, do so in small amounts. Treat it, treat it like ketchup or mustard. <laughs> Um, as, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, the cornerstone of the meal. Uh, avoiding caffeine, this is really helpful for how the liver processes estrogen. Uh, are, are folks familiar with the, um, the enzyme systems in the liver that break down various drugs, various, uh, uh, food constituents, um, like the CYP2D6 enzyme systems, is that a familiar term? 
Nope. Okay. So in the liver, we basically have um, these little factories, these enzyme factories whose job it is to break various things apart um, so that they can get detoxified and moved out of the body in a bowel movement. So different factories, uh, you know, kind of work on different substances. Um, the CYP2D6 that I'd mentioned, that enzyme factory uh, tends to work on most pain medications and a lot of um, mood medications as well. The enzyme system that works on estrogen is the same factory that also breaks apart caffeine. Um, for the record, it's the CYP1A2, though that doesn't usually um, come up uh, outside of, of scientific literature. So if you did want to read more about it, you would look for CYP1A2 um, enzymes. And the issue when people are having uh, kind of this really high levels of estrogen and experiencing things like PMS or premenstrual dysphoric disorder or um, fibroids, endometriosis, um, and they're drinking a lot of caffeine, that means that they're sending a lot of caffeine molecules to the same factory that's supposed to be also breaking down estrogen. And when that factory gets overwhelmed, it becomes inefficient. And so then you can become both very caffeine sensitive, meaning a little bit of caffeine might make you feel anxious or wiry or, or jittery, but it also means that your estrogen is probably not being broken down very quickly. And one thing that I've seen uh, clinically quite a bit is that a lot of times when women have these high estrogen con conditions, they're not tolerating caffeine particularly well, but they're so used to um, not feeling good when they drink caffeine, they don't necessarily recognize it <laughs> as a problem. So what we really have to do is um, try and negotiate a, you know, one, two, three, four week just trial. Let's just take it out for a couple weeks and see what happens. And what is more common than not is um, after avoiding caffeine for a period of several weeks, then going back and maybe trying to drink a cup of coffee or having a latte, they realize, okay, actually, this makes me feel terrible. <laughs> you know, I, my, I feel more anxious. I notice that my sleep gets much worse, that my joints hurt, all different kinds of things that can kind of be tied back to that relationship between caffeine and estrogen. So even if people say, oh, I drink coffee all the time and I don't have a problem with it, um, one of the things that I think we can kind of bring that back to is to say, well, in the liver, the caffeine and the estrogen are kind of sharing the same factory for detoxification. So you might feel okay drinking the caffeine, but it might be affecting the estrogen. So if we take the caffeine out, can we just see if that makes you feel better overall and you know we'll run that experiment and if it works great and if it doesn't then we've learned something we've learned that actually you're tolerating caffeine all right after all um, regular exercise uh, particularly strength training uh, can be extraordinarily helpful for um, for keeping hormones balanced. Exercise has a lot of different influences on um, hormones all throughout the body and ultimately, you know, kind of all hormones are more or less connected. So the stronger the muscles and the more regularly the brain is getting uh, a boost from um, endorphins and the more regularly the brain is getting a break from cortisol that estrogen, um, that, sorry, exercise tends to bring, uh, the more balanced um, the sex hormones can be as well. Uh, has, has the book Spark by James Rady been discussed um, in prior groups? I don't think so. So this book here, Spark by, um, oh, John Rady. Sorry, John, got your name wrong. Um, this, he, uh, John Rady is a psychiatrist. And he has devoted pretty much the entirety of the research portion of his career to how um, exercise changes the brain. 
So I would absolutely put that on uh, a reading list. And in addition to just sort of the, the general chapters about how uh, exercise is tied to brain health, how it helps reduce stress levels. He does have a lot of specific information there about how it helps um, with hormonal balance, particularly uh, towards menopause, but really all of that is going to apply to uh, women who are struggling with hormone balance earlier in life too. And then uh, lastly, uh, considering a referral to a naturopathic physician for evaluation of the digestion and hormonal balance. So uh, more, more um, conventional providers who can also be naturopaths as a primary care um, or, or gynecologists, they can absolutely discuss medications um, and, and various treatments, but for the most part, it's only going to probably be the NDs who are going to really focus on the uh, role that digestion plays in um, estrogen metabolism and detoxification. So if you feel as though you know someone who could benefit from, from more of that holistic approach, I would absolutely um, encourage a referral to somebody who could actually look at uh, the hormones through the lens of the digestive system. As, as well as just the more traditional views. Uh, any questions about those recommendations? Maybe while people are typing, we can actually go back to a question um, from the previous sure. slide about endometriosis. Yeah. Um, there was a question about whether that was an autoimmune disease and whether, if so, does that mean that that, that would be intensified by estrogen being dominant? Or what is the, the connection there? Oh, no, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot that we still don't really know about endometriosis, about why it happens. And um, the, so I would, I would say that the autoimmune um, hypothesis, uh, I think, is, is absolutely a player in that. And because estrogen uh, tends to be a, um, a bit of a pro-inflammatory um, uh, hormone, I think there's actually a relationship with a lot of autoimmune conditions um, since autoimmune conditions themselves are inflammatory conditions. So it's, I think, in, to some degree, a little bit of a, a chicken and the egg does um, a setting of uh, an autoimmunity where we already know that um, inflammation levels are high. Would that make someone more sensitive to estrogen? Probably yes. Would high levels of estrogen being themselves slightly pro-inflammatory make somebody um, perhaps a little bit more at risk for an autoimmune condition? Um, I don't have data on that specifically, but I think there it would be reasonable to think it's certainly a possibility. I just had a question about the the relationship between that you talked about at the beginning between like estrogen and progesterone and mm -hmm. if if it's a ratio thing like if an estrogen level is normal but the progesterone is low mm -hmm. is that sort of the same as having a high estrogen like so so one balances the other but i so i'm just not i, I was just wondering if you see that or if that's just like a whole separate kind of thing no, I think the the idea of um, the even if even if um, one is normal, if the other is high, does that create a situation where it feels like a deficiency? Mm -hmm. um, I think yes, that that absolutely can occur. And uh, one of the challenges too in medicine is that when you're thinking, oh, well, what if I just test the hormone levels and then I can have sort of an objective number that tells me, <laughs> right? That seems like that would be a really mm -hmm. easy solution to this question of, well, is one just really high and the other really low or is one normal and the other, um, you know, kind of above or below? And uh, the reality is that for hormone testing, um, most of the ranges for uh, hormones that we can look at, like particularly estrogen and progesterone, uh, the normal ranges are quite large. Mm -hmm. So we often uh, 
don't really get as clear of a picture as we might want from lab numbers themselves. Because and I imagine the levels are changing also so much. So is it, you know, is mm -hmm. it, is it a, it's not really a, a, a window into what's happening on a lot, you know, it could just be like a one-off or an up or a down or however, you know. Correct, yes. So we're really having to look more at the symptom picture mm -hmm. and how that changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, that was just such a surprise to me as I was, you know, kind of moving through my own training and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to learn so much about doing lab testing. And it turns out, actually, yeah. lab, lab testing is most helpful for knowing, you know, is, is a particular gland perhaps, you know, completely shut off or, you know, completely uh, dysregulated to the point where you worry, um, you know, that an illness might be quite extreme. But for almost all of the conditions that we've talked about here, there's not really a very big role that it plays. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, anxiety and the vagus nerve and the pelvic floor. <laughs> so uh, when, when I'm mentioning vagus nerve, is that something that uh, most people have a, a sense of how the vagus nerve affects the brain? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty pretty well um, established that the vagus nerve is important for um, helping kind of calm the brain and the stress response um, and send okay survival signals. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about this picture uh, is that it shows uh, the diaphragm that the vagus nerve has to pass through on its way to all the digestive organs. And the di diaphragm and the pelvic floor uh, are really part of the same box. So the diaphragm is the ceiling, the pelvic floor is the, well, the floor, and they're supposed to have sympathetic movement. So when our diaphragm pushes down, our pelvic floor is supposed to push down a little bit, and when we breathe out and our diaphragm rises, our pelvic floor is also supposed to rise. Um, and that's just how they're designed to work together, to always be in motion with one another. So what this has to do with uh, estrogen and with anxiety is uh, we know that if somebody freezes the diaphragm and they stop stimulating the vagus nerve, that they may become anxious or anxiety may worsen because they're lo losing that stimulation. Uh, one of the things that's also happening is that when we freeze the diaphragm, we're also uh, affecting the pelvic floor because now its partner isn't moving in sync with it. And that makes the pelvic floor get kind of dysfunctional as well. And when the pelvic floor gets dysfunctional, then we tend to have problems with urination, specifically incontinence, not being able to kind of hold on to urine when we might really want to. And uh, what that means is that there is a actually a pretty strong relationship between anxiety uh, and urinary incontinence. And one of the things I work, I work with a urology group, so I'm in the urinary incontinence world rather a lot. Uh, one of the things that is, again, both under-recognized and uh, I think often under-treated is the anxiety component in the condition of um, urinary incontinence, which in and of itself can create more anxiety because if you feel like, you know, you might... Uh, leak or wet your pants when you're out in the world in a social situation at work, uh, that's not a very comfortable, uh, you know, kind of way to be. But yes, these are from the Continents Foundation of Australia, which has a ton of really wonderful, um, very uh, patient or client-friendly information about uh, urinary incontinence. Um, but one of the big things that I think that um, mental health care providers can do to help uh, play a role in, in urology that no one else, not even necessarily the urologists, are really able to play right now, is um, helping recognize and, um, and address um, 
anxiety in a setting of, of urinary incontinence because there is some pretty clear data that shows when a woman has urinary incontinence, which that's something that uh, is increasingly likely to happen as a woman ages for reasons related to estrogen, um, if she also has anxiety, her urinary incontinence is, uh, she's, is, is harder to treat. Um, some of the um, some of the least invasive treatments, um, such as pelvic floor rehab or pelvic floor physical therapy, are less likely to work because of the anxiety component. And I think that really kind of goes back to the diaphragm. As another piece of kind of looking at, at people holistically that we would kind of consider as could this be a physical symptom that is actually pretty intrinsically linked to anxiety? Um, we should really be looking at urinary incontinence. And I would uh, hope that over time, um, more, uh, more, to, more of the sort of physical inventories of anxiety will include uh, urinary incontinence on that list. So some of the, the steps, if you, um, if you learn that somebody, that's, that's a piece of, of their picture, is that they have urinary incontinence, then please know that anything that you can do to facilitate um, anxiety, particularly through looking at, at factors that affect the vagus nerve, like diaphragmatic breathing, that's actually going to be helpful for their pelvic floor. If you feel that someone could benefit from pelvic floor exercises and you would like a um, resource to kind of send them to, then there's a link to um, the Pelvic Floor uh, First website that is um, comes from Australia. And then uh, referring to a urologist or urogynecologist, um, that can be helpful because if the incontinence itself is really driving some of their anxiety or depression or sense of hopelessness, uh, which it does tend to do, um, then getting treatment for that condition is, is going to be helpful. And I would really encourage you to um, educate them to ask or request for pelvic floor physical therapy or pelvic floor rehab um, prior to looking at, say, surgical interventions. You know, different doctors uh, have, have different um, priorities, but really the very first you know, most gentle, least invasive place to start would just be strengthening the muscles. And if they have a good pelvic floor PT or a good pelvic floor rehab provider, those are usually the individuals who are also going to really look at the diaphragmatic breathing patterns as well and hopefully provide some physical support for that that, of course, might uh, directly tie back into um, anxiety. Uh, and then also, if they're over 40 years old, um, vaginal estrogen, uh, which is a local, very low-dose estrogen, can do wonders for um, the pelvic floor and for urinary continence as well. Questions about that? I feel, and sometimes I feel like talking about urinary incontinence when we're uh, kind of just talking about other hormonal conditions is a little out of uh, left field for most people. So if, if that's the case for you, then you're, you're not alone, but they are tied together. There's a comment that this is really great information. Oh, well, so thank I you. Think it's something good to, you know, to a, a connection made between the, the urinary incontinence and anxiety is, is um, and another person says they agree. So that's, you know, I think uh, for me anyway, I'll, I'll just say that's a, a new connection. So it's, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think it makes, sense that urinary incontinence can, would cause anxiety, but I don't know that I was necessarily aware that anxiety could also, you know, that, that it went the other way too. So I think that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I can't remember if it was the American College of Gynecologists or a different, um, a different research institution, but a couple of years ago they came out with a, a study that absolutely showed that anxiety specific um, particularly untreated anxiety or anxiety that's maybe only managed by, say, benzodiazepines, which we know is not the most ideal approach, um, that that is a barrier for um, success in treating urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I'm, I'm really hoping the, the information flowing between these two, the worlds of, of urology and mental health just goes stronger over time because it seems to be absolutely a two-way street. Um, and I know that we're running up to just the end of our time. I talk more than I think I do, I guess. Um, I did want to cover just this one more slide um, about the difference between vaginal estrogen and hormone replacement therapy, because this is an area where I think there's a lot of misinformation out in the general public and sometimes even amongst healthcare um, providers themselves. But vaginal estrogen is something that can improve um, urinary incontinence and be appropriate for almost any woman outside of perhaps estrogen-sensitive breast cancers. Whereas hormone replacement therapy, that's the one that kind of carries all of the big black box warnings about um, cardiovascular health. Um, so just as a, as a note, vaginal estrogen it is only worked locally. It's delivered directly to the vagina via either a cream or um, like a suppository tablet or a um, plastic ring that can be left in place for um, several months at a time. It's very, very low dose. It's not being absorbed into the body, so it's not going to affect the uterus. It's not going to affect the breasts. It's not going to affect the brain um, 99 times out of 100. And the, therefore, the risk associated with use is low to negligible. Um, that said, it still has to carry all of the same warnings that any other estrogen product does. So that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. So sometimes we do see women who are refusing um, vaginal estrogen to help with incontinence or to help with um, you know, sexual function related to atrophy just because it's carrying all of those warnings that would really apply to a more systemic form of estrogen, um, like the, the traditional hormone replacement therapy. So there, because it is being absorbed into the bloodstream, it's traveling all throughout the body. Um, some of those risks associated with heart disease, stroke, and cancer um, you know, are, are very valid concerns. Um, and, and those do tend to increase as, as people age as well. But I uh, wanted to use any platform available to me to, to help just dispel kind of that myth that vaginal estrogen is, is the same um, or kind of carries all of the same risks associated with um, hormone replacement therapy. Any last questions from anybody? Great. Well, uh, it sounds like there's just a lot of uh, thank yous here. One of the participants uh, just typed in, thank you, this, this is information that I can immediately use with my clients. So, oh, nice well, I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Miranda. This is, I think, really interesting um, component of the, the anxiety conversation that this group has been happening.